I want to give a special welcome to those of you who are visiting with us today. And uh, among those, I realize um, my parents are visiting today, Brian and Roberta, but they were here last week. So I'm going to just especially say it's a, a wonderful thing to have uh, Reverend jo Jonathan Wong and his wife, I forget your name. Karen, I should remember that. That's my sister's name. Uh, Jonathan and Karen are visiting with us. Jonathan was our first rector um, here at Christ the King. And you're going to hear more from him later. We're going to do a little Q&A with Roger. Um, and we're excited to hear about what God is doing in your life. But uh, last year, was it last year that you defended your thesis here at Wycliffe uh, College? So you are now the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Wong. Uh, and um, you are the incumbent of Church of the Good Shepherd in Singapore. So anyway, can we give a warm welcome uh, to the Wongs? So as intimidating as it is for me preaching uh, with Jonathan here, um, I do speak to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are, as a church, at a point of great transition of a whole world of changes that are about to happen. Now, I feel like you don't need me to tell you this, right? This is, this is uh, been on, you know, in, on the back burner, I think, for much of the last two years, that when our previous rector, Keith, uh, announced that he was leaving and we began a search process and we began looking for someone and Glenn was very happy to step into the, uh, the interim rector position, we knew the change was on the horizon. But I'm gonna be honest, a month turned into six months, turned into 12 months, turned into two years. And for those of you who are on the search committee, I can understand that as long as that felt to me, must have felt a lot longer to you. But when you get used to an interim, and as we enter into an interim following the interim, and as we prepare ourselves for the arrival of a new rector, I feel like I have to begin our sermon today by saying change is coming. Now, if I could tell you what those changes would be, I would tell you, but I don't know what they're going to be. But it's always difficult when change comes, and it's difficult because you don't appreciate the magnitude or the scope or the kind of changes which are going to come, often until long into the process of change itself. That makes sense. And it helps to have a kind of preparation, a kind of pep talk, a kind of get yourself ready for what's going to be happening before it happens. When we marry people, for instance, when we have a couple, a man and a woman who come together and they get married, usually there's a minister like myself who stands up there and gives a probably longer than necessary sermon at the wedding in which we begin to outline, okay, here's what you're going to do when things get difficult, right? And ideally, we've been doing a little bit of marriage preparation in the weeks leading up until the wedding. Uh, as we try and prepare the person for what is going to happen down the line. Because you're going to get a few months into that marriage, and then what's going to happen? Suddenly, it's going to get really difficult. And so the preparation that you're doing ahead of time is so that not the day after the wedding, but so that six months, 12 months, four years, seven years after the wedding, the preparation has been there so that a foundation has been laid, so that when those difficult times come, when the changes are confronted, you have something stable, enduring, that you can keep coming back to and saying, okay, this is going to help me get through the difficult times. We, as a church, are beginning a sermon series on the book of Ephesians. And this is a very brief sermon series. And we are cherry-picking parts 
of Ephesians, out of the epistle to the Ephesians. But what we are, as a pastoral team, doing is we're picking the parts of Ephesians which have something very specific to teach us about what the church is. What is the church? That is, as we as a church, Christ the King Church, looking around here, these are the people that I see. How do we confront the changes that are about to happen so that when difficult times come, when we're uneasy, when we're frustrated, when we're hurting, when things aren't happening or going like we want them to, which is inevitable, every time change happens, we have to confront these things so that we can come back and say, yes, but who are we as a church? What are we as a church? What does it mean for us to be the church of Jesus Christ? Now, Ephesians is in many ways an ideal book for us to keep coming back to over the next six weeks as we, as we ask the question, what is the church? What is our church? Because Ephesians has as its theme, the church. Now, there's a lot more to Ephesians, obviously, than that. But Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, there in the first century, a church which was on the southeast, or sorry, southwest coast of what is modern-day Turkey, a church that he had spent around three years ministering to, and a church that he continued to have contact with through Timothy, his protege, who then went and became uh, one of the first pastors or bishops there in the church of Ephesus, a church that continued to be important long afterwards, as we even see in the book of Revelation, as John, who received the revelation from Jesus Christ, was told to write his first letter to the church in Ephesus. But this church in Ephesus, Paul was writing to try and help them connect the gospel that they had received to what it meant to be a community that we call the church. That is, Jesus Christ, who is gathering all things into himself and who has given his life for the church, Jesus Christ, who has commissioned the church in his name to go and to minister in this world, this Jesus Christ and the good news about him has demands on what it means for us to be the church. He makes us who we are, and he tells us what we need to be. And at many points in church history, as the church has had to struggle with what does it mean for us to be the church, we have come back to the book of Ephesians, and we have said, all right, well, let's start here. Let's start asking ourselves the question, what does it mean for us in this place, whether it was, you know, medieval Rome, or whether it was, you know, Oslo. I don't know if there was an Oslo. Uh, but it, let's say it was the Vikings up in the north of, of the world, or whether, you know, it was missionaries in the middle of Kenya. Where, wherever people found themselves, they began to look at Ephesians and say, okay, for us here today, the transitions that the Ephesians had to make as they moved from Judaism into the church, and as they moved from being pagan Gentiles into the church, and they had to put up with each other, and they had to resolve their differences and forge a new way of life as a community shaped by the gospel. What does the Holy Spirit, who was teaching them something, have to teach me and what Paul was writing them? So this is why we are doing this series. This is why we are beginning the series in chapter 1, and we're going to move through in six weeks until we get to chapter 6. Um, and then here comes Lent. So it'll be a new thing for Lent. But I think it's important for us, as we take a few weeks to step back and say, who are we? Now, what does that mean for us? I think it's important as we look at 
Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. And Travis read it, but I do encourage you to pull out a Bible. Get the Bible on your phone, one of the Bibles on the table. But open it up to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. I do want us to focus on what this passage teaches us about the enduring nature of what it means to be the church. Now, I say this, I would love to have made this a very sophisticated sermon where we went through this and we discovered it together about what Paul is trying to teach us about the church. But then Roger went ahead and made this wonderful little card that you should take home with you. Um, share it with a friend, let people know about our sermon series here at church, but it's just going to tell you what, I, what I'm going to tell you here today, and that is, I think what Paul is trying to tell us in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15, is that the church is a new creation. God in the beginning made the heavens and the earth. But in Jesus Christ and in the church, he is doing something new. He is making a new creation. We see this if you go to the very end of the Bible, and we see that God has made a new heavens and a new earth that is coming down from heaven. And I think what Paul is saying to us here in these verses is that the church is a new creation. That the church is God's way of bringing about a new creation in the midst of this world. And, and this is perhaps the big idea that I want you to take away here today. The big idea is that the church is a new creation because Jesus Christ is himself the new creation. That is, God has done something new. He has begun something new. He has fulfilled something new in Jesus Christ. And because we are in him and he is in us, because of our connection to him as a church, we as a church, Christ the King as a church, we are a new creation. Now, those could sound just like words. And you say, absolutely, David, you are absolutely right. We are a new creation. Hallelujah, amen, and let's go home. But what does that mean? What does it mean for us to look around the room at each other and say, we are a new creation because Jesus is a new creation? I think it's important for us to go to this passage, and we're going to study it in a little bit of detail so that we can pull a few ideas about what this means for Paul and why Paul is so insistent that we need to discover this truth about who we are as a church. Paul, in this introduction, this is the introduction to the letter, he does two things, and this is the only one of his letters that we have where he does these two things. He does one of them in other letters, the other in others, but this is the only letter where he brings two things together. In the first verses, in verses 3 through 14, Paul gives his readers a blessing of God for everything that he has done for them in choosing them and in calling them and in adopting them and in bringing them to salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ, in whom he has now reconciled the world and is wrapping up all of human history in the person of his son, Jesus and having sent out the Holy Spirit on his people, he has now given them a deposit of everything that he has promised them and everything that they have to look forward to. This is what he blesses God for. And then he moves into verses 15 to 23 with a thanksgiving. He says, therefore, I want to thank God, the Father of glory, because I have heard of your faith. 
and of the love that you have for all the saints. I have heard about you, and I want to remember you. I want to make mention of you in my prayers because of everything that I have been hearing about you, Ephesians. And then he says, and what is he asking? He then asks, having made thanksgiving, that God would do something for them. And basically what he's asking is that having put their faith in Jesus and having shown love for one another, he asks that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of their hearts so that they can see the true reality of what they have come into as a church. And Paul lays it out as three distinct things. But, uh, and we're going to get into those. But I want to just highlight, he wants the Ephesians to experience, to know in that experiential sense of knowing, to know what it is that they have entered into, what it is that God has given for them in this church. And we know he's talking about the church, not only because he says that they have love for all the saints, but when we get to verse 22 and 23, he's going to talk about how this church is the fullness of everything that he, God, has prepared for them. And the knowledge of that reality, the experience of that reality, is what Paul is praying for the Ephesians. And what I want to suggest to us today is that we go to this passage, we go through these verses, and we ask, what do we, how do we experience the church as a new creation? That is, not just know about it, not just have a faith that, yes, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, not just say, absolutely, I have love for the people around me, but isn't that enough? How do we experience what it means to be a new creation as a church? And Paul, in verses 18 and 19, what he does is he lays it out for them. If you look there here with me, he gives us three things. First, he asks that the eyes of their hearts would be opened so that they would be able to know, first, in verse 18, what is the hope to which the hope of his calling, the hope to which they are called. Secondly, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And then thirdly, Verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great power? Those are three things that Paul wants the Ephesian believers to experience and to know. And I think those are three things that I would like to unpack with you today. And I want to do that by connecting those three things with the verses that follow, verses 20 to 23. Because the verses that follow in 20 to 23 describe how Jesus Christ himself becomes the new creation. So again, as I mentioned before, the big idea here is that we are a new creation, and we can experience this new creation because Jesus is himself the new creation. Is that... Does that work for us today? Does that method work? So the first thing that Jesus wants us to learn here, I'm just take out my notes here. First of all, we, in the church, we experience a new power from God. There is a power at work, Paul says, that we need to know and we need to experience that is found in the church. Power is a theme that Paul will come back to again and again and again through Ephesians. We have to be careful about what kind of power that we are talking about. But we have here at the heart of this passage a power that Paul refers to. Again, in verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great, 
uh, of his mighty power. And then in verse 20, he talks about what that power is. He says, it is the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, the first thing that Paul wants us to experience as a new creation in the church, that God is doing something new, different from what he has done before, is a same kind of power that he exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead. Now, this is a different power than what he did when he began creation in the first place. Paul does not say, I want you to experience the kind of power that he exerted when he said, let there be light, and there was light. Or that he exerted when he said, you know, let the, let the skies teem with swarming things. Let the seas teem with swarming things. Let there be beasts on the earth. Let's even make man in our own image. Male and female, he created them. This is a different kind of power that, that Paul exclusively uses for the incredible working that God did when he raised Jesus from the dead. Or to put it another way, is that the resurrection is the beginning of the new creation. That is, when you begin to say, okay, what does it mean to be a new creation? What does it mean to experience a new creation? How do we mark the beginning of God doing something new in creation? It begins with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is the power to raise the dead from death. It is the power to raise the earthly all the way up to heaven. And it is the power to restore and to renew humanity in its entirety. Paul does not mention the cross. The cross is there. The blood of Jesus is the presupposition of the resurrection. But the power of the resurrection itself, Paul says, is the beginning of something new. In that sense, the cross is the end of the old. The resurrection is the beginning of something new. And this is the new creation power that is at work among us. Now, first of all, let me point out that this is God's power. It's not ours. These are not simply our natural abilities and the good things that we do and the ways in which we naturally love each other. No, Paul is clear that there is a power at work among us which exceeds what we would otherwise be able to do ourselves. The church of Jesus Christ is a miracle along the same lines as his resurrection from the dead. It is a miracle that we are gathered here today, 2,000 years after this man lived here on earth. In his name, singing his praises, having fellowship and communion with him, we as a church, Christ the King, are as much a miracle of the mighty working and power of God as his being raised from the dead on the third day was. And Paul wants to stress as well that this is a power that is exerted to and among those who believe. It is connected with our faith in Jesus Christ. It's not to say that faith is the power or is the source of that power, but our faith is the instrument of that power. In fact, this power is what brings us to faith in Jesus Christ because it is a power that is expressed, as Paul says in Romans 1. This is a power that is expressed through the preaching of the gospel. The gospel itself is the power of salvation for those who believe. 
But it is also a power that not only brings us to faith, but that operates through faith. So that as we, as a church, go before God and we throw ourselves at his feet and we put our trust in him and we say, you are our God and we believe your promises in Jesus Christ and we are entirely at your debt and in your mercy, we experience the power of God flowing from him to us. And as Paul will later say in the epistle, in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 16, this is a power that is made known as we, as his body, as his people. And we'll talk about the church as a body in one of these following sermons. But as this body grows up into maturity, as the ligaments and the bones and the muscles all become united together in love, it is this energy, this operation, this power and work among us that begins to animate the body of Christ as it grows in maturity. Now, I think this itself can be encouraging because growth and maturity, I think, is a better standard for how we see this power than some of the more obvious displays of power that I think we might otherwise think of. I don't know if you've ever turned on the television and you started watching Christian television and you see a faith healer up there and he, you know, he starts saying something crazy and then people start falling down and, and everyone's like, oh, it's amazing. And you look at that television and you say, oh, for real though? I don't know if that's ever happened to you. It happens to me sometimes. We can have a kind of cynical outlook. And sometimes that expectation of, in order for this to be a miracle, it has to be obvious, and it has to be in your face, and it has to be the sort of thing that you would put on television. But having had kids, one of the great things is, you, be, you for parents who worry a lot about their children, we take them to the doctor. We've got all these worries, and we've got all these concerns. We're like, well, he's not doing this. Well, she's not... Uh, she's not She's not doing what the other kids are. The great thing is that the doctors have basic benchmarks of, okay, this is how you tell whether your child is growing appropriately or not. Are they meeting these benchmarks or not? And if they are, great. If they're not, we'll check into it. But there are standard ways for us to see, okay, is this community growing? And what Paul does, even though he is asking for the Ephesians to experience the kind of power that God is exerting in their midst in a new and daily and fresh and vital kind of way, he doesn't, at the same time, he directs their attention to the kind of ordinary growth that should be manifest in an organism, in a body, in a community that is growing naturally and that is growing supernaturally. Just like a baby can be known, the baby's growth can be known by its hitting certain benchmarks, a church's growth according to the power of God can also be known by the way in which it meets certain benchmarks. And those benchmarks, again, come back to faith and love. Comes back to the way in which we enrich each other's lives by pouring out our lives in love for the other person. That we lay down our lives for the brethren, as John will say. And it's known by the way in which our faith allows us to take risks, put our lives on the line, be willing to give everything up to follow Jesus. Why? Because we know in whom we have trusted and we have experienced that power. In other words, the power of the new creation is experienced through our community's trust in Jesus and our love for one another. Well, let's move on to the second way in which we experience that power. The second way in which we experience that power is that we have not only a new power from God, but we have a new position before God in the presence of God. Let me direct your attention to verse 18. He, Paul prays that his readers will know what is, the, what is the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints. 
Question is, what is that inheritance? It's phrased really interestingly. I think most of us, especially in the way in which this word is often used in the New Testament, we assume, okay, this is an inheritance that I am going to receive, right? I got rich parents. I'm going to come into that inheritance when they kick the bucket. Obviously, God's not going to kick the bucket, but there's going to come a moment in which I come into my inheritance, and I'm going to receive all of those blessings for me. And that's one way of interpreting this passage. However, based on how it is constructed, many commentators also take this in the sense of we are God's inheritance. In fact, this is the ordinary way in which this phrase is used in the Old Testament. As God talks about his people Israel, he says, Israel, my inheritance. In other words, out of all the nations of the world, God had chosen Israel to be his inheritance, to be what he receives. And I think there's something to this. Now, whether we take this in terms of God is our inheritance, he is the thing that we ultimately are going to be getting at the end of the day, or whether we are what he is receiving after everything that Jesus has done for us. There, ha there is in view the sense that we are coming into a relationship, a position with respect to one another, in which what we are becomes his and what he is becomes ours. Where he lives in us and we dwell in him. Where he is our dwelling place and he makes his dwelling among us. This is what I mean when I say that we experience a new position before God. What Paul has earlier in chapter 1 referred to as our adoption as sons. And what Paul is referring to as he writes to the Ephesians and he calls them saints. And he talks about their love for all of the saints. And the way in which he has, a glory, he has his glorious inheritance among all the saints. That power is being exerted among all the saints. All of this is made possible because Jesus himself does something new, because there is a new creation in what Jesus has done for us. The new creation, yes, it begins at the resurrection, but it culminates in his ascension, in his going up to heaven, where Christ is exalted, as Paul writes, above all powers, where he is exalted over all things, over all of creation, where he is not only Lord of the present age, but also of the age to come, where all creation, Paul quotes, from Psalm 8, has been placed under his feet. Jesus Christ, as a man, ascended up to heaven, now takes center stage as the fulfillment of God's first creation and as the beginning of a new creation, as he stands before God and as he intercedes for his people and as he represents a new humanity before the throne of God and becomes the way in which at the right hand of God, God himself administers this world through a man. And Christ, having ascended up to heaven, having suffered and died for us, he ascended up to heaven, now intercedes for us, and gives us his position before the throne of God. Paul refers to this later in chapter 2, as he says that we have been seated with Christ in heavenly places because of his rich mercy. The riches of his grace, as Paul writes in chapter 1, and as he writes in chapter 2, the riches of his grace mean that we, seated with Christ in heavenly places, now have the same relationship with the Father that he himself has with the Father. God is ours, and we are his. We, seated with Christ in heavens and saved by grace, now enjoy that new position with God. One which, having been secured for us, gives us also a new relationship with one another. I remember being in a, in a church 
when I was in university, and I'm sorry if I'm telling this story, some of you may have already heard this story, but let me just tell it. Many, in most of the churches that I had attended up until this point, when someone really messed up, like had an affair, uh, what they would usually do was they would either leave the church and never come back, or they would get kicked out of the church. What I had never seen before was a, a young woman, recently married, who cheated on her husband and had an affair. And the church, what did they do? They began to reach out to her. She separated herself from the church, but they began to call her all the time. They began to bombard her with notes of affection and love. And they began to say, hey, we miss you. Your husband misses you. Come back. Come back. Come back. And I was amazed. I was 20, 21 at the time. But I was amazed to see that after a few months, you know what happened? She started to come back. This was a church that was confident in its position before God, that knew who it was as an heir, co-heir with Christ of the things of God, knew that God had done everything to come and to win the souls and the bodies and the hearts of the people who were gathered in its midst. And knowing that, knowing everything that Jesus had done to purchase their lives, looked at this woman and said, Jesus has died for her. We need to make sure that she understands her position before the throne of God and that there should be nothing that separates us from her just as there should be nothing that separates her from God. And I can tell you that she ended up repenting, coming back into the church and reuniting with her husband. I'm not saying this happens every time. But I was amazed to see the way in which the people in this church, the confidence they ha that they had, the faith that they had, the love that they had in Jesus Christ was able to restore this person to fellowship and be a witness to me and countless other people. To put it another way, our new position as co-heirs with Christ in the new creation is experienced in the confidence that we have in him and the loving generosity that we show one another here in the church and others. Well, finally... Let me add that not only in the church do we experience a new power from God, a new position before God, but we also experience a new purpose for God. We did pick this passage, and this is one of the trickiest passages in the New Testament, particularly in verse 23. We'll back up to verse 22 here. He says, and he, gave, and he put everything under his feet, and he appointed him as the head over all things um, to the church. He gave him to the church as head over all things, who, that, and she is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all in all. Many people say this is one of the most incredible verses in the entire New Testament. It's so meaningful, we don't really know what it means. I don't know if you reading this passage, you say, what does it mean for the church to be the fullness of him who fills all? all in all. It's a little bit tricky. It's a little bit difficult to explain. But let me just say that my reading of what this means is that there is a purpose for which Jesus Christ came, and that is to bring about the church, because his purpose is to bring about a new creation. Jesus Christ himself, he says, in putting all things under his feet, he then fills all things. That is, he, being a new creation, is the one who is at work in the present age and in the present creation, in the world around us, in the lives around us, in the birds, in the rocks, in the trees, in the solar systems around us. But he, as the new creation, is at work around us, bringing about this new creation, filling it up. But that he 
His fullness is in the church. The church is the fullness of who he is. He is incomplete without the church. And as a result, he being our connection, connection with the entire rest of the world now gives us as a church a hope. What Paul talks about in verse 18 as the hope of our calling. Now, Marcus Barth, the son of famous theologian Karl Barth, Marcus Barth, in his commentary on on Ephesians, points out that calling, when God calls us, calling it is always an act of creation or, in this case, of a new creation. When God comes and he makes us new, and remember what Paul says, everyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. When we become new creation in Christ, when he calls us, he gives us a new hope. But this calling is for a purpose. This hope is an end point. It's not a beginning. And the direction to which God is pulling us and pushing us has to do with everyone else around us. It is a mission to which we are called, one that we can see begin as Jesus himself, as the new creation, recapitulates the old. Recapitulation means to go back to the start, to become a new head, and to live the whole thing over. In verse 10 of chapter 1, Paul talks about how Jesus is bringing all things together in him. He is living the old creation life all through his, his time on earth, his 30-something years on earth. He is living that life and having fulfilled all of the old creation and making it new and being raised from the dead, he becomes what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is the last Adam. The vanguard of this new creation, his purpose is to fill all things so that, in first, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, so that God himself can be all in all as Jesus fills up all of creation and hands it back to him. That this occurs at the end of the age when he comes back. But even now, before his return, Jesus is filling up all things in the church. Now, how does this work? How does it work that there can be such a porous boundary between the church and the world, between Christ and the world, between us and Christ? How is it that our lives can be so intermingled? The best analogy that I've been able to kind of come up with for my own self is that the creation is a little bit like a microbiome. I don't want to gross you out too much, okay? But, okay, I, I see some of those health science people just perk up all of a sudden because I mentioned microbiome, right? The idea is that we are not just our own our own personal selves with our DNA, and that's all we are, right? Our bodies are inhabited by millions of tiny microscopic cells and organisms, right? Bacteria, yeast, in our intestines, in our mouths, on our skin, all over our, our, our persons. We are a composite of not just our own human DNA kind of cells, but all kinds of other little microbiomes. I read a few months ago, on a blog, and you may think that this is a silly question, but the question was, well, when Jesus was raised from the dead, what happened to his microbiome? It's kind of an interesting question. I had never really thought about it before. And it, for the person who was writing this blog post, it really posed a question, a, 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 a really bizarre question. Are those microbi uh, or microbes, are they now in heaven with Jesus? Or not? Like, what, what happened to his microbiome? And the conclusion that they came to, and I, I kind of agree, is, well, yes. Because Jesus, 
as the beginning of the new creation is also the end of the old creation. He is that meeting point. And just as in his microbiome, I'm sure that there are bacteria and yeast and all kinds of organisms that share his life and he shares it with them. There is a sense in which Jesus, much like Adam was in the first place, but Jesus now especially, becomes this point of contact with all of creation. Not just what's living in his gut, but what, but what is flowing through his heart, what is flowing through his veins, the flesh and the blood that he gives for the life of the world is now poured out for all of the world. And even though he has not yet come back and the entire world has not yet been renewed, we can see in his life a porousness with this world that he then extends in some sense to the church. The church as his body is also porous with the world. Porous, not just in the sense that what the world does can affect us and we can be, you know, victims of persecution as much as we can be beneficiaries of, of uh, public opinion. But in the sense that we, in which the church is called to bring the life of Christ beyond its borders, to bring people into the church and to send the church out beyond its borders. We have a calling, a purposeful act of new creation and consequently of missions. We are not just a gathering of people here in the church. We are those who presently embody the hope of all creation. The local church, it has been said, is the hope of the world. And that may be putting it a little bit too strongly. But when we think about Christ the King, we think about ourselves as God's people here on earth as a new creation. And our mission is not simply to lock ourselves up in these doors and to celebrate and to serve one another, but to go out into the world and to minister the good news of Jesus and the love of Jesus Christ to a world that needs him. Our purpose as a church is expressed as we take on today the characteristics of a new creation, the new heaven and the new earth that Jesus has promised upon Christ's return. So I began this sermon by simply saying that we, we have a world of changes coming as Christ the King as a church. The question that I would ask is, when people encounter our church, do they find a whole new world? Do they experience what we are? We are a new creation. I'm not telling you today that we as a church need to go and figure out how to be a new creation. Jesus has made us a new creation by giving his life on the cross, by rising again from the dead. He has made us a new creation. The question is, are we going to experience it and are we going to help other people experience that new creation as well? There will be more to talk about in the sermons down the line on the way in which we experience God, or that we as a church are a city or a family or the bride of Christ or the body of Christ or an army for Christ. But I do want us to think this week. Take your notes home and think it over. Are we a place in which people are experiencing a new heaven and a new earth when they walk into our midst? That is what we are. What can we be doing as a church to help people experience that? Amen.